Amen. Thank you so much, Nate and Alice. Really beautiful. I'm Craig Allen, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and grateful to be with you today. We are starting a series, a four-week series on Advent, and Pastor Robert will be back with us next week. Uh, I might invite you at this time to go ahead and take out either your analog or your digital Bible and turn to Isaiah 9. We will get there in just a little bit. We're going to be doing some preparing of the way before that. And... Uh, Great, Joshua, can I get the back screen going for me? That'll help me out. Thanks so much. <clears throat> Let me ask a question. Do you ever find yourself asking, what is wrong with the world? <laughs> so many things seem upside down. So many things seem backwards. Do you ever find yourself just in despair, wondering, or maybe it's not the world in general, maybe it's to somebody in particular. Why don't you get it? When will you ever get it? And they don't ever get it. And we wonder why. And then there's other times we look in the mirror in a time of honest reflection and we say, oh no. God, why don't I get it? God, I'm the problem. Why am I stuck again? God, why can't I change myself? Why do I have the same issues over and over and over? Would you help me to learn what I need to learn? Where can I get the kind of wisdom that could actually change my life and change everything? And this is speaking to the human dilemma that we find ourselves in. Why can't we think better, do better, stop the same stuff? The condition of the world that we find ourselves in based on Genesis 1 to 3 that then play out in the rest of, of the scriptures are that God has made everything beautiful but we experience everything as broken. God has made everything very good and yet we come across things that are badly tarnished and that's the story of our life. There's a three-part narrative in scripture that if we could grasp this, I think this would change everything. This would solve so many issues if we could fully grasp and understand this right here. In fact, it's so significant. I want you to say it out loud with me with vigor, all right? This first one, God created everything. Now as we think of God creating everything, everything he created is good. Everything that God created is good. No one else created anything. Satan has not created anything. And yet there's another reality that nothing that we experience is fully good because of number two. Say this strongly with me. Sin has damaged everything, okay? Sin didn't create anything. Nothing belongs to the enemy Sin is good, corrupted, and it's corrupted everything. The third thing, through Jesus, God is restoring everything. That's where we're gonna be focusing today is the restoration process, the restoration program that God has started and launched. Our human condition is that we were created in God's image, to bear God's image, to reveal his image to the principalities and to the world around us, and yet, that image is marred. It's been defaced, it's been corrupt, and this makes our world broken. It makes individuals hurting and rebellious, and reality is upside down, and things are going the wrong direction. You know what, no matter who controls Congress, things are going the wrong direction always, necessarily so, life under the sun. 
The Bible has such wonderful imagery to describe the place we find ourselves. Uh, the Bible gives us so many images and metaphors to describe our condition. Perhaps you've heard of some of these. We are blind and we need sight. We are deaf and we need to hear. We're captive and we need freedom. We're foolish and we need wisdom. We're lost and we need to be found. We're sheep who's gone astray and we need a shepherd. We are sick and we need a doctor. We're wounded, we need healing. We are separated, we need to be reconciled. We are rebellious, we need to repent. We are defeated, we need a victory. We are dead, we need new life. Some people are prone to pick one of these and beat up on all the others, and that's not the point at all. Each of these images that God has given have their place, and they contribute their part and have their role. But the dominant metaphor of Advent is this. It's that we are in darkness, and we need light. We desperately need the light of God. Um, in all of this, we have failed, we have fallen short. That's the essence of sin. We have sinned. We have been sinned against. We bear scars from the sins against us and the scars from the sins we have been participants in, in hurting others. Against others, we've had a failure of love. Against God, we have had a failure of worship. We are in need of a solution that we cannot provide and that puts us in a desperate place. And the remarkable thing is that into this broken world, God has set in motion a redemption plan. And to this rebellious humanity, God has put in place a rescue plan. And these were announced in Advent. So we wonder, well, what is Advent? Well, Advent is a four-week season preparing for the coming of Christ, as Jan was describing earlier. Advent means the coming, and it implies the waiting. There's this appraisal that we were in darkness, or we are in darkness, and so many things are wrong. But there's this anticipation also in the mix that God is bringing light to restore the wrong and to make things right the way they should be. So there are these multiple themes that are introduced in Advent. Darkness being eclipsed by light. Despair giving way to hope. Evil being overwhelmed by love. Sadness being overcome by joy. Conflict subsiding and peace expanding. This is gospel territory. In Greek, the word is evangelion. It's announcing good news. There's a hope that is announced a new hope that's announced, and it's even better than the original Star Wars by that name. Um, there are four things here, scriptures that are so key in the story of redemption and the story of Advent here. The first is that even in the territory of the fall, when, when sin was announced and its pervasiveness was, was revealed, there was also a promise of redemption that was set in motion. There would be a seed that would be born, an offspring, who would actually be the snake crusher. His heel would be damaged, but he would crush the snake. Some of you might remember Dave Barry back in the day, and he used to say, that would be a great name for a rock band. And just imagine the snake crushers. I don't know, I'd buy their album. So just for the great name. Uh, Genesis 12 to 18, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and from you I will bless all of the nations of the world. 
That's this redemptive promise of the pervasive plan of God to reach all of the world. And then as he's cultivating and developing a nation that then needs to be rescued, he calls on Moses in the book of Exodus to redeem, to rescue physically those who are enslaved and he promises him, I will be with you, I will be your God and he rescues them. And then in 2 Samuel to King David at the height, at the pinnacle of the kingdom of God uh, with the nation Israel, He gives him this promise and he says, I will raise up your offspring after you and the throne of your kingdom will endure forever. And so the biblical storyline with these key contributions of major prophetic moments uh, that are known as known as covenants, Uh, the biblical storyline is developing through the first half of the Old Testament and hope is in the air and God is building his kingdom uh, slowly but surely and it climaxes with the victories of of David over the armies and then the, the, the era of peace through Solomon and then just like that, the monarchy is over and it's finished. The kingdom becomes divided between north and south between Israel and 10 tribes in the north and Judah, the two tribes in the south where Jerusalem is. In the north, all of the kings are bad. In the south, about a third of the kings are bad. And virtually everyone is eventually in rebellion as the idols of the Canaanites and the the surrounding nations come in. And it seems that darkness has eclipsed the light and into this pervasive darkness, a series of prophecies are given to Isaiah. And they come in these chapters, chapter seven, chapter nine, and chapter 11. In Isaiah seven, there's a promise of a virgin birth. In chapter nine, of a son to be born. And in chapter 11, a branch, literally a, a shoot in a stump of a felled tree. Imagine that the kingdom of Israel has been cut down. What was a tree brought down to nearly just a stump at the ground. But God has promised that there is a new shoot, a new green stalk that is growing. It is not completely finished. There's new life to come. It's just going to take a while before it comes to fruition again. A long while as it comes to, to fi- as we come to find out. So um, in this series, we're gonna focus on four words at the end of Isaiah chapter six. And this has been kind of a big picture setup. I wanna do a, a smaller local picture setup, the context of Isaiah chapter seven and eight that sets up chapter nine. So chapter seven opens with Judah's King Ahaz, this is down in the south, and he's unfaithful to God, and he's fearful. He's heard that there's an alliance being made between two local kings, the king of Israel um, and the king in Aram, or we might say Damascus in Syria. For Southern California, for California geography, we could think, okay, so Ahaz is down in Los Angeles in Southern California, all right? And then there's the king of Israel up in Northern California in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And then there's this king in the next nation up in Oregon, up in Portland, okay? And the king of San Francisco and of Portland, they're conspiring together to have a coup to come and attack uh, and to th- attack Jerusalem and dethrone Ahaz, knock him out of leadership, 
completely take over and establish their own vassal leader. And Ahaz is afraid. He's fearful. And so God sends Isaiah to speak to Ahaz, to confront him, and to say that the conspiracy that he's worried about, don't be afraid of that conspiracy. It is not going to happen. Those kingdoms are weak, those kings are weak. Rather, he tells him to stand firm in faith in Yahweh. And to prove that God knows what he's talking about, he asks Ahaz through Isaiah to request a sign. And Ahaz has this false religiosity that is there to cover his unbelief and he says, oh, I will not put the Lord to a test. And God says, I told you to ask for a sign. I am going to deliver a sign. And in verse 14 of chapter seven, he delivers one of the most significant signs and promises in the Bible that has what I believe to be a dual fulfillment. It says in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, Isaiah seven verse 14, the virgin is to conceive a son and be called Emmanuel and to act as God with us. And before the son starts talking, the two threatening kings will themselves be deposed and their land will be laid waste. And then chapter eight describes the birth of Isaiah's son. This name should be under consideration for all of you planning to still have children or animals. It is Mehershal Hashbaz. You have to practice it at home before you can say it in public between, uh, in front of people. I understand from, from Joel Garman that there was an ultimate Frisbee team at Biola that took on that name because it means quick to the spoil. I thought, that is so awesome. And he's born as a child of Isaiah who is a prefigurement of the God with us child. He's a local fulfillment, but he's not the ultimate fulfillment. See, sure enough, within two years, the northern areas of Israel are taken over in 733 BC. And the entire northern kingdom was forever destroyed in 722 BC, and the 10 tribes in the north, north were taken away in captivity, largely never to return to their land. And the, Lord, the, 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 the word of God to Ahaz was, do you want to be afraid of something? I will give you something to be afraid of. I'll give you something real to be concerned about. Instead of being attacked by those two puny kings, I'm gonna have the king of Assyria take them out. They are not your concern. Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, he is your concern. Uh, He's currently leading the most ruthless regime in history to that point through whose uh, treachery the kingdom of Assyria had ruled the entire Middle East area for about 400 years. Back to the California and Oregon map, you can now think of the entire rest of the United States being ruled by Assyria and they're going to come to Judah and they will come like a flood, but they will be protected because Emmanuel, because God will be with you. This is a map of that area you see here in green. This, that, that whole area in green is what was controlled by Assyria, and you see the, the reddish arrow pointing out this small yellow area. That's the area of Judah, the area around Jerusalem, the only place in the kingdom of Assyria that was protected by God. Fulfillment of this promise in chapter seven, fulfilled in chapter eight. God is with them. We come 
to the end of chapter eight, the last seven verses, and Isaiah's gonna say super, uh, three super important things here. Isaiah is warning, don't call something a conspiracy just because others do. Don't fear what others are afraid of. Rather, fear only the one true God, Yahweh. The second thing is, do not listen to mediums and spiritists like the pagans do and these false, these wicked kings are. Rather, inquire of your God alone Consult God's instruction. And then Isaiah connects God's hiding of of his face from Judah and Israel as the true essence of darkness. What is spiritual darkness? It is God hiding his face or the face of God being hidden from people. That's true spiritual darkness, to lose access to to the face of God, to lose access to his relationship or his blessing or most significant for us today, to his wisdom or his counsel. That's what spiritual darkness is. And so the two chapters climax in 8.22, the last verse of chapter eight. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And that ends those two chapters. And this sets up chapter nine, where our passage lies for this four-week series. Look at verse one, because chapter nine begins with a glorious reversal. It starts with this awesome word, but, meaning everything you've heard before, now there's something different coming, right? And look at this, but, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. I got the wrong, I've been a verse behind. I'm so sorry. There we go. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So we're gonna take a closer look at what's going on here. Isaiah is now looking to the future. He's prophesying from the position of the future what had happened uh, in the past. He's looking back from the future, calling the present the former time. And in later times, God will change the present gloom into glory. Then he refers to Zebulun and Naphtali. We wonder, what, who are, are, are these people? Are these places? Yes and yes. These were two of the sons of Jacob, two of the tribes of Israel. These became two land areas where people congregated part of the the areas that comprise the Jewish kingdom. And they were in the north, the areas between the two seas, between the massive Sea of Galilee and the local, I'm sorry, the massive Mediterranean Sea, excuse me, and the local Sea of Galilee in the north and extending even beyond the, uh, the River Jordan there. So these are significant here because they're the first two regions taken by Assyria who attacks from the north and they they conquered Israel, um, this region between the seas here, and it's called Galilee of the Gentiles because it became overrun by people from other nations after the 10 tribes um, were taken into captivity off in Assyria. And it's now gonna be 750 years 
before Messiah begins his earthly ministry. Well, do you know where Jesus began his earthly ministry 750 years later in fulfillment of this prophecy? This is where he began. Look at Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read it off the screen here. He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It has been dark for 750 years, and Jesus begins his ministry of light in their darkness in this region that had first been attacked. Jesus goes on to describe the, his ministry. It says, then Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's come near in him, in his person. And then just kind of a paraphrase of what comes next. Uh, this is where Jesus began to call his disciples, first Andrew, first Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. And then he went throughout all Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among his people, and then it finishes by saying, and it, his fame spread throughout Syria. Th th throughout where? We would expect throughout Jerusalem, or throughout Judea, or throughout Israel. Throughout Syria. So this is as if Jesus is doing his great works of miraculous, compassionate healing in the Bay Area, and it's all the Portlanders, it's the Oregonians that are telling of his fame. They're hearing about it and they're coming down to be participants in it. Jesus started this work in Zebulun, in Naphtali, the darkest places he began to show the brightest lights, the places that were overrun by the Gentiles is where Jesus began to pour out his mercy. When we think of the places that Christians ought not go or the places that God maybe has disregarded and isn't particularly interested in, those are exactly the places where Jesus does go and where he calls us as his followers to go. Remember that third thing, God is doing his reclamation, restoration process, and it involves everything. It involves everywhere, and Jesus is demonstrating that in this fulfillment of prophecy here. As we go on to um, continue to look at chapter nine, I uh, just want you to see the structure really quick of how these verses are laid out. In the first three verses, these are expressions of hope, and the next three verses are explanations for that hope. These three expressions of hope are in the form of three reversals. We heard the first one already in verse one. It's from gloom to glory. The second is from darkness to light in verse two, and then in verse three is from decimation and the fear that that causes to multiplication and the joy that that brings. So here's verses two to three. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, or as one translation says, those who dwelt in a land of death's shadow, on them a light has shone. 
Verse three, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They now rejoice before you as like a harvest when dividing the spoil. See, in the scriptures, God's presence is associated with light. The lack of God's presence is associated with spiritual darkness. So by definition, darkness cannot produce its own light. Light, like the morning sun, has to reappear. God gives us this reminder every day. Darkness doesn't solve its own problem. It has to be invaded by light, and then it's overtaken by light, and it dissipates. So we so desperately need God to shine his light into our darkness. In the dark areas of our life, we are unable to do self-help to fix our darkness. We can't turn our darkness into light. Light is cor- darkness is corrupted light. It's, it's where the light has left. The light needs to come back. So if you're experiencing darkness in your life, Recognize that spiritual darkness comes from one of two places. It comes from when you have left the light, you have moved yourself away from the light of God. Or when God has removed his light from you. Does God do that? Yeah, he does. Perhaps we've heard the phrase Ichabod, when the glory of God has departed. That can be a nation, a region, a kingdom, a people group. When people have been so hardened that God will no longer show his grace. Or it can be for God's good, that God can have purposes in shadowing his light to us. Some people have called it the dark night of the soul, a time that God means for our good, but it's a season of difficulty, a season of challenge, a season of intentionally weaning us from our practices in the first half of our lives that have worked so well until now, until they no longer work, and we press through and they no longer work. And God is wanting to show us something new, something deeper, something more precious, a new level of intimacy with him. But he withdraws first to create a new hunger that we can then step into and appreciate him so much more fully, so much more deeply than ever before. It's a disguised grace. We cannot turn up the light of God. We can't flip a switch and get more light from God any more than on a cloudy day we can by ourselves remove the clouds. All we can do is put ourselves in a position so that when God is shining his light, we can receive it. We can accept it, we can respond to it and embrace it. The light of God was available to Ahaz and he rejected it. The practical risk of us following Ahaz and living independently from God is that we can be inviting spiritual darkness into our lives, leading us to destruction. But the next three verses are all about hope, the explanation of hope. There's a day when the oppressor is overcome. In verse five, when battle boots are gonna be burned. In verse six, when a child will be born who will change everything. We look at verse four here. It says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We hear these references to to oppressor and staff and rod and and we're drawn back to the words of uh, the, the, the territory of Egypt where the nation of Israel 
were held in captivity, literally as slaves for 400 years, and they cry out and they call out to God, and God responds by sending, uh, sending Moses to rescue them, and they experienced physical deliverance. They experienced physical salvation. That became their Jewish salvation story, which then becomes this wonderful image of, of a spiritual salvation story that Jesus won for all of us, for all the world on the cross. But mentioning the day of Midian, we can wonder, what is that about? Again, is that a person or a place or what, what is that? Well, this is part of the nation's history and it's told in that exceedingly awkward part of the Bible, Judges, um, particularly here in chapters six to eight. In this case, is a bit of a bright spot in a very dim book where they're being invaded, Israel's being invaded by forces from Midian and they're being overrun for seven years. It's so severe that they have run for the hills. You've heard that phrase, this is that phrase. They have run for the hills and taken uh, to living among the rocks and the caves. Their agriculture has been taken over. Their water supplies, their food supplies have been taken over. They're starving. They are not living. They're living in hiding and they're crying out to God. Much like the Israelites in Exodus 3 and much like that story, God hears their cry and he promises them victory and he sends them kind of a mini-me Moses uh, deliverer who will act on their behalf. And like Moses, Gideon who is chosen, he says, no, it's not me, you got the wrong guy, pick someone else. And specifically he says in verse 15 of, of Judges 6, he says, please Lord, how can I save Israel? Because my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. God says, well that makes you perfectly qualified. If you're small and humble, you are usable. Verse 16, the Lord says to him, but I will be with you. Same words he said to Moses, the words that make all the difference. I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So Gideon does what we all would do. He tries to amass the best army he can and it needs to be massive. So he recruits 32,000 warriors to go into battle to overthrow this invading army. And God says, no, that's too many. And he immediately reduces them down to 10,000. Then through a series of steps, he reduces them down to 300. A few trumpet players and some jars that they get to break along the way. And those 300 men and those trumpet players and those jars go to victory against the invading army from Gideon, destroying them, running them out of the land. And the message could not be clearer. It was not the strength of the Israeli army. It was not the strategy of their commander in chief. This was the power of God. God himself would fight the battles of Israel when they call on him and when he shows up with his presence, he will win their battles for them. And so Isaiah is calling the people, remember Midian. This was a story that grandparents would have told to their grandchildren by the fire. This is a story that every Israelite knew. We have to be reminded of it. This was in their folklore. This was in their heritage. This was their, in, their, in their, their heritage of their story of who they were. God is with us, remember Midian. But there's a time coming 
Verse five, when every boot of the battle of the trampling warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's a day coming when war will end, when all of the accoutrements of battle, the weapons, the stained clothes, the boots that take people into battle will all be thrown in the fire to be burned because they won't be needed anymore because it's an extended area of everlasting peace. And then the last thing to be prophesied is the climax for a child will be born <clears throat> and salvation will come through this king's birth. Let's look uh, a little more closely at verses six and seven here. And this is the heart of Advent, the heart of our series. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is not possible, this is certain. How will God stop oppression and end war? Through the birth of a child. How is a tyrant like Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria taken down and ended? How are demonic forces led by Satan himself, the serpent and dragon, how are they overcome and decimated? By the birth of a baby, royal child, a son who will head the government of God as the rightful ruler. This is a spiritual kingdom to be led by a divine ruler who's given lofty divine titles. This child, this birth, this son to be born will be the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy from two chapters earlier in Isaiah 7:14, and of the prophecy to David in 2 Samuel 7. He will be this offspring who will sit on the throne of David forever. And the promise to Eve back at the very beginning in the garden, back in Genesis 3. This will be the ultimate one who will crush Satan's head and the ultimate one who will be God who is with us. And this unfaithful monarch, this King Ahaz, and this tyrannical monarch, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, they will both be replaced by an ideal monarch, pre-announced by over 700 years that a baby would be born. And he's going to bring an eventual end to all wars, defeating not merely kings, but principalities and establishing an everlasting kingdom. And the darkness of this world is going to give way to the kingdom of light, the light of God, through one known as our wonderful counselor. And that's where we want to just settle in for a bit. He's our wonderful counselor. He's a wonder of a counselor. Just thinking of that word wonderful. He is full of wonder. When you look at Jesus, is that what you see? Are you amazed at him? Are you enthralled with him? Imagine going to one of the most stunning places perhaps you've gone to. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon. And you sit there and you're just stunningly amazed at how vast it is, 
how incredibly large and deep it is, and you feel very small. That's a sense of how we might feel in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, small as in like a drop in a very large bucket. Because God just spoke the word and things like the Grand Canyon came to be. Because God is the living, Jesus came as the, the very word of God who speaks all of creation into existence and himself represents the word, the truth, the clarity of God. Um, John refers to Jesus in John 1 and Revelation 19 as the word of God. He's the one who revealed the counsel of God to humanity in his words and in his actions. Everything Jesus taught was fully consistent with the mind of God, reliable counsel. Here's just a few, just a selected array of some references to Jesus' wisdom that's called out uh, by the New Testament. I'm just gonna read them. In Luke 2.40, the child continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Matthew 13, 54, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? First Corinthians 1, 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Colossians 2, 3, my favorite, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have a counselor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Just a sampling. There's a poet, W.H. Auden, who wrote in 1939 a poem in part called An Evening in a Nightclub. He writes, Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The light must never go out. The music must always play. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood. Children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. This insight from 80 years ago strikes me as to the reality of the human condition but before the advent of television that trained an entire populace of people to avoid looking at the soullessness or the death of their soul or the wounds of their hearts um, and instead pursue being entertained to death. This is before anyone invented Netflix binging or the internet at all or social media or any place to spend time out there so that I don't need to spend time in here, looking at the damage of this world and my soul and how it competes for my ability to interact with and to hear the wonderful counsel of the Lord. Um, All of this makes us ripe for the gospel message when we realize that when we do face our human condition, realize we are blind in darkness, desperately need the light of Christ. No matter what education we've had, we don't have enough to know what to do to save ourselves. And left alone, our instincts are usually wrong and usually lead us on the way to self-destruction. All of this is seedbed for the gospel message, a message of good news for anyone who is hungry, anyone who is needy, anyone who is thirsty, 
and is looking to God to provide the solution. It's a message that needs to be heard and not only nodded to or given lip service, but to be believed, to be entrusted, to be given allegiance. The big idea here is that into our darkness, Jesus has brought the true light of God's counsel. This is an expression of the gospel, and it's possible that for some of you here, this is the only application today that you need to hear the gospel clearly revealed and simply to respond to it, to engage it, to receive it, to respond to it with reception. Um, I ask believers in the room to be praying as I say these next words. The gospel has been announced, and it is this, that in Jesus, the light of God has come into the world and it has overtaken the darkness. In Jesus, a wise, the wise and the wonderful counsel of God is now accessible and available by faith to those who entrust themselves to him. And the question for some of you in this room may be, have you, like Isaiah, responded to the announcement of God's light in Christ? Jesus came into this world as the wonderful counselor. Is he your wonderful counselor? Jesus came into the world as the Lord and Savior. Is he your Lord and Savior? Or like Ahaz, are you putting him off? Are you relying on yourself, fearing other things more than God? Fearing conspiracies or openly delaying or rejecting his offer of salvation? Are you choosing to remain a little bit longer in the darkness? Or are you embracing the light that he is offering today? In Matthew 4, which we read, Jesus announced the beginning of his ministry and fulfillment of Isaiah 9 saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was saying the kingdom of God was near. It was accessible. It was available to them in himself, in Christ Jesus. He was in their midst and he called people who were with him to become his followers. And when they did, when they responded, they were saved. They were given the hope of eternal life. God is pursuing a gospel of redemption of the world, the whole created order, a reversal of the fall to make things right again, full restitution. And he's announced the opportunity for individuals to be rescued, all who will respond to him in faith. So Jesus has come to meet us in our brokenness, our failure, our rebellion. He has come near as a healer for the sins against us. He's come to pay the price of redemption for the sins that we have participated in. And he has bridged this enormous chasm between our sinfulness and his perfect righteousness. He's come in pursuit of you He's come in pursuit of all of us to enable us to become the people of God, to be united with Christ, to live in his spiritual kingdom, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. Look at this here in John chapter one, verses nine to 12, clear verses of the gospel through the lens of Advent. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Yet he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But, is that wonderful but again? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you responded to such good news? How do you respond to such good news? Well, it can start with humbly confessing your need to do what Ahaz wouldn't do. You admit your weakness. You admit your sinfulness toward a God who is holy and righteous. You repent of your sins, meaning you agree with God. I can't do it. I need you. And you believe in Christ, or you believe into Christ, that God has provided Christ Jesus for you. Jesus came as the very wisdom of God, the promised son who would set captives free. And so you admit that you have been held captive and you desire to be set free by Jesus, by what he did on the cross, because Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, mine and yours. So you place your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You believe this reality. Christ died for my sins. So I'm turning from myself into Christ. And as Jesus rose from the dead, he revealed himself to be the son who is of God, or as we say, he is God, the son. He offered a free gift of salvation for anyone who will receive the gift. We don't add to it, we don't, we, there's no, it's not after we have done as much as we can do, it's a gift. Jesus has done everything, all we do is by faith we receive it, we embrace it. And as a sign of true faith, then God calls us to publicly announce our faith through baptism, through water baptism, and to join a local church, could be ours, could be another, but somewhere that you can grow and participate among the body of Christ so that the light of the Lord Jesus Christ would shine through you to others and have his desired impact on your life and in your life to others. If you are today confessing your faith in Christ for the first time, or perhaps God has brought you to the line and over the line where you say, yes, I want to receive that gift. I encourage you to use one of the cards that are in front of you, a connection card, and just alert us that we can follow up with you. I want to follow Jesus. I want to belong to him. However you want to say that. Or perhaps you realize, you know, I've done that. I've, I've received Christ, but I haven't been baptized. Go ahead and write that so we can help you follow the Lord in obedience there. But there's another area of assorted application points for all of us in the room. And I'm gonna go through these really quickly, but this is to avail yourself of the wonderful counselor that we have in Christ. When we say that we are saved by faith in Christ, so many wonderful things happen to us. But it has also been a fresh start. It has also been a beginning. Conversion is just the start of things. We don't enter the new birth untainted. We don't enter clean slate. We enter with baggage. We enter with wounds. We enter with scars. We enter with patterns of sin. We enter with patterns of protection because we've been sinned against. And all of these things become hindrances, become places where access to the, the, the life of God, the light of God becomes squelched, becomes squished, become, uh, become darkened. And so we desperately need a wonderful counselor 
to heal our hearts? What forms can it take like? How can it, can it look like? How can God um, help us grow into his counsel? And one simple thing is simply doing what you did today, coming to church, coming to join this body in this room to sit under biblical teaching and prayerful teaching that hopefully is accurately being taught to represent the word of God. Proverbs 1, to 1, 1 verse 2 says, to learn wisdom and moral instruction and to discern wise counsel. And I encourage you strongly to make a spiritual discipline of showing up here in this room among these people every Sunday. And the weeks that you cannot physically be here uh, where it becomes impossible to join us online and not to miss any of the teachings here. Uh, A second thing is to spend time richly being personally shaped by the scriptures. Uh, Scott last week was making the case for the scriptures being absolutely foundational. There's no replacement for this. I wanna just speak to the how of that briefly um, because there is an art and there's a skill of learning to accurately interpret and apply the scriptures so that they have their full intended effect on our life, so that we can receive the full counsel of the light of God. The Bible is over a thousand pages of God's godly counsel and wisdom for us. This is where we discover God's righteous character and his standards and the depth of his pursuing love for us. And we see that God has presented himself most fully in the person of Jesus so that when we see Jesus, we see God. We have ABCs and Bible studies you can join that will help you participate in this. Spending relational time with with Jesus. Think of this, um, not merely making an appointment with a counselor maybe a couple times a month or three times a week at perhaps $200 a pop, um, but we become most like Jesus by spending time with Jesus. There is no other substitute for that. The most potent way we grow in Christ-likeness is by spending intimate, personal time with him. How do we learn to do that? Well, there's cultivated skills for learning how to be in his presence, how to pray, how to pray the scriptures, how to meditate on the scriptures, how to bring our life uh, under, under his rule. There are spiritual disciplines to learn, to practice. Um, sometimes we can benefit as we invite others to assist us and where a wonderful counselor can have more impact on our lives because we all can get stuck, we all can have plateaus, and we can benefit from inviting other mature believers to help us grow and to benefit from the wonderful counselor. I'm gonna give you four and we'll end here. One is spiritual friendship, where we invite someone who has been involved with the Lord longer than us. Maybe it's over coffee, maybe it's over conversation, but we invite them into our world and we share with them and, and they help remind us of the truth of God. And that can take so many different forms. The next level up is official mentoring or pastoral counseling, or we might call it a discipler that we place ourselves under, again, under the express purpose of I want to receive the wonderful counsel of God. I want the light of God to shine in my life more fully. Would you help me get there? And someone who has lived and experienced walking with God guides us in how to do that. If we want um, almost the 
the, the, the private lessons approach. There's a category called a spiritual director. And a few years ago, I'd have been like, what's a spiritual director? Kind of sounds weird to me. Um, this, this is actually a ministry of discernment where you've got a skilled listener, someone who's trained in discernment of the movements of the heart and the movements of the Holy Spirit. The actual director is not the person, but it's the Holy Spirit. And when I meet with my spiritual director, his job is to listen and to ever be praying, to discern where the, where the Spirit of God might be at work in my life and to speak back wonderful counsel from God and to perhaps guide me in a spiritual discipline. And I just ask you, where in your life do you have somebody that you bear your heart with once a month who you trust implicitly with all of the wrestlings of your heart and who will pray on your behalf and listen and walk with you toward the Spirit of God alongside you? Do you have a person like that? Eugene Peterson is on record urging every church to require that their pastors and their spiritual influencers are themselves under spiritual directors to help us avoid the fallout of ministry and, and avoid the problem of narcissism or self-thinking, uh, thinking that we've got it all together by ourselves. And then there is the place of truly Christian therapists. Uh, Proverbs 19 to 20 says, listen to counsel and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Some of the wounds that we carry, perhaps uh, particularly if we are from severely dysfunctional homes or we didn't get the love or the care or the nurture that we needed early in childhood or anybody who has been subject to abuse of any, t- any kind, uh, you may find yourself getting stuck You may have questions. Why do I always respond this way? Why do I always get agitated this way? Why am I triggered in this way? That can happen to any of us, even if we can't put our finger on why. And we can place ourselves with humility under those who are skilled in understanding and having studied the human condition and are steeped in theology as well and know how to integrate listening to our hearts and bringing the scriptures and our faith together with wisdom that God has provided so that the true counsel of God will have full fluidity to be poured out on us and in us. That the light of God will actually reach us, reach our receptors and we can be more responsive to him. Into our darkness, God has brought the true light of God's counsel And in all of this, the goal is that we receive the counsel of the Lord, submit our wills to him, to find our joy as we're caught up in the one who is full of wonder. And as we invite the light of his presence deeper and deeper into our lives, we are changed and transformed and bring glory to our God. Uh, I'm gonna stop there. Ushers, would you come and... um, If you have a connection card, we encourage you to place that in the offering. We're gonna receive our offerings. Let me just pray. Father God, we wanna be thankful for sending the light of the world. God, we pray that we would ever be trusting more and more into Jesus Christ, that his light would be shining in us and through us. In his name we pray. In his name we give that the gospel may go out. In Jesus' name, amen.
moment before we start singing to internalize these things, to come before the Lord in prayer in our hearts. So I ask you to bow your heads with me. And...